Well, praise the Lord. <clears throat> Wonderful singing to the Lord, and reminding us today of the passage of Scripture in front of us. <clears throat> Acts chapter 11. If you'll make your way there. All right, Acts chapter 11. It's great to hear the pages turn, even though most of you are looking at the board for the Scriptures, right? Acts 11, 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call uncommon, or call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, Sent to me from Caesarea, which were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them. Here's that phrase again that we picked up in chapter 10 making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved and you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that I could stand in God's way. When the circumcised, the, the Jews of the circumcision heard this, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I give you the sermon title with the last verse of the scripture in this particular unit. God gave repentance to Gentiles. Now here's the point of this narrative. The point is the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to the nations. Remember, Acts is going to unfold according to Acts 1.8. And you shall be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the universal message of the truth of the gospel of Christ, is becoming universal in experience and application to the ends of the earth. So God 
converts Peter's attitude by letting down this ark vessel by four corners filled with animals, much like the description given in the book of Genesis, and tells Peter, right, kill it and grill it, right? To eat what's in that uh, ark-looking sheet. But we know what the meaning of it is. It's brought out in application that we're talking about people. There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to the gospel. So God converts the attitude that Peter had and then he brings repentance and or regeneration to the heart of Cornelius. A secondary major theme I think that we need to bring forward would be that if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. There's some very bad theology going around in a lot of churches where they teach that, that you need a second work of grace. That it's one thing to be saved, but the baptism of the Spirit comes separate. I disagree totally. There's nowhere found in the Word of God where, where that is the case, provided you understand the context of what's going on in the text. When the day of Pentecost came in power, when they heard the Word and believed, they were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice in this text, when they believed, they were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, you have all the power you will ever need to live the Christian life, all that pertains to life and godliness. And also, you received at conversion the Spirit of God, which will help you be a witness to the ends of the earth. So that very power lives in you. So Peter is preaching the gospel, if you remember from last week, and his sermon is kind of cut short because the Holy Spirit comes in power. Uh, the Word of God is being preached. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word. They hear the Word. They trust Christ, and they're given the Holy Spirit. And Peter baptizes the ones who believe. But now we see that Word travels fast. That's true around FBCO, right? Especially you Facebookers. It just goes everywhere. When there's any word whatsoever, news travels fast. And that's what we see happening here. It should be somewhat expected that the apostles back in Jerusalem would get the word that Gentiles had believed the word of God because Peter was an apostle. But what about this phenomenon of the fact that it spread throughout the entire Judean Christian community? In other words, the entire religious, the entire regional Jewish Christian community in all of Judea got this word that the Gentiles had believed. And this is what was heard. Gentiles had received the word of God. Now, the radical thing about this is not that Gentiles came to the faith. Why is that? Because did you have Gentiles come to faith in the Old Testament? Absolutely. You have several in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Who, At least two ladies we can throw out pretty fast. Rahab and Ruth, right? We think of those two. Uh, Ruth being a Moabite. What, what awesome that God would do that. But here's the, thing about, here's the thing about Ruth. She makes her commitment to Naomi's God. Remember that? Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. So it's really a commitment to Israel's God. In other words, the people had to come to Israel. That's what you see in the Old Testament. But here, the relationship is totally different. God 
is coming out with the gospel to save people. God himself is initiating this particular work. The gospel-centered New Testament covenant is different in that sense because here you're, Peter is told as an apostle to go to Gentiles and share Jesus Christ with them. That's what's astonishing about it. That's what's awesome about the gospel. So Peter, a Jewish apostle, goes into a Gentile home, and then this Gentile home believes in Christ Jesus. They receive the Spirit of God. And there's no fundamental distinction between the way the Jews were saved and received the Spirit and the way that the Gentiles were saved and received the Spirit. Now, when you're translating the Bible, those keys are important. You can't just bump over those things. You have to think about context. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And you have to find out what authorial intent was and find out what was going on. So under the Old Covenant, no matter how faithful the people were to the covenant God of Israel, there was still a distinction. Remember we talked about being a God-fearer and being a proselyte? Well, the proselyte was the highest level. But there was still distinction made between a true Jew and a proselyte that was a Gentile seeking the God of Israel. There's still a distinction made. But here our God works in such a way... Again, that Peter goes to the Gentiles, they believe the gospel, they receive the Spirit, and there is absolutely no distinction between the two. All distinctions are erased. Unfortunately, the big news that comes to the circumcision crowd is what? Back at base camp, Peter, you ate with Gentiles. That's almost like Baptist tradition and customs, right? We think if we cut some Baptist traditions, we've abandoned God, right? If we don't do it the same way every time. But notice, Peter is headed home. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that when it says Jerusalem or you're journeying there, it always says up to Jerusalem. Do you know that it doesn't matter if you were above Jerusalem or below to the side or to the right, no matter what, you were still going up to Jerusalem. That's the figure of speech used. Now, I know you remember Stephen's sermon in chapter 7. Correct? Most of you can probably quote that from memory. But Stephen preached a sermon, and the central aspect of the sermon was that God did not dwell only in Jerusalem. And that, furthermore, God did not dwell specifically anymore in the temple. He dwelled in human hearts. And so he preached the fact that God was not bound to any sacred space. Wherever God shows up is sacred space. And Stephen preached that whole thing. Yet it's clear here that the Jews would still have held the idea that Jerusalem, even in the Christian realm, was the mother church and the geographical center of the church. And so Jerusalem would be considered the mother church. So we have a confrontation going on here. Those of the circumcision would be Jewish believers. Now, note this. The ones confronting Peter are believers. They're believers. They're just believers that held to circumcision as a necessity in order to know the covenant God of Israel. Even though they had come to faith in Jesus Christ, they would have vigorously held to the law and to the customs. These guys would have been very zealous. You're going to encounter them again in Acts chapter 15 verse 5. Don't turn, just listen. The Bible says, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. 
Now, this is going to be something that's going to rear its ugly head over and over and over again. I would dare say it's still alive today in many different ways. But these people are saying they're really coming to faith in Christ. They're, they're really trusting Jesus as Lord. Well, uh, Paul, why aren't you ma- making it mandatory that the men and our children are circumcised? It'll come up again in Acts 21, 17. Uh, Here, Paul in Acts 21 is preaching free and sovereign grace. Isn't that awesome? And the only thing that the people hear is the fact that, Paul, you're teaching them to reject the law of Moses by not requiring that they're circumcised. So the same Peter who saw the vision, who preached the sermon, who gives this explanation of the understanding of the gospel is the same Peter that's a little later in Acts going to have to be confronted by Paul Because Peter will not eat with Gentiles. Oh me. And he's seen all of this. But Galatians 2 talks about that confrontation. When Paul had to go face to face with Peter and say. Dude that's not the way the gospel works. This is a gospel of grace. Not circumcision outwardly. So the culture. Tradition. Their heritage. Is all bound up in this confrontation. With these men. With Peter. Now, we can easily think that our culture, that the little nuances that we do at First Baptist Church as a Southern Baptist Church, we can actually think that cultural, traditional things are essential in making the gospel known. I beg to differ with you. We need to make absolutely sure that we're sticking to the essentials of the Word of God, not Baptist tradition. Uh, Throughout the years that I pastor here, which hopefully will be until my feet are stuck straight up in the ground, I guarantee you, you're going to be reminded many, many times that your traditions are trumped by the Word of God. And if your tradition, you press upon the Scripture, guess which one is wrong? Your tradition. You need to let the Word of God temper your traditions. Not all tradition is bad, but if it gets in the way of what the Word of God says, then your tradition is really, really bad. So they're arguing and debating and criticizing Peter. So much for throwing a party for a successful disciple-making endeavor across the world, right? They don't come come back to Nashville. No, I shouldn't have said that. You know, Nashville is a center of Lifeway, right? It's almost like Lifeway sends out their ambassadors. you got to report back to Lifeway back in Nashville. But here, here they are going back to Jerusalem. And back in 1020, the angel says to Peter, Peter, you make no distinction. But what happens when he gets back to Jerusalem? Boy, they're making distinctions, aren't they? You ate with Gentiles? How in the world can you do this? By the way, who's a Gentile? Everybody sitting in this building, for the most part, that I know of, right? Okay, so back in 1020, he's told not to make distinctions, and yet he gets back, and that's exactly what these believers that are uh, steeped in custom and tradition, that's what they're doing. Verse 3 reveals the heart of the matter to them. You went, here's a literal rendering from the original language, from the Greek. You went to men who have uncircumcision. That sounds like they've got a disease, right? I mean, well, to them, to be uncircumcised, to them was a disease. Then they share the crime of all crimes. You ate with them. Sometimes when we read through Scripture, we just kind of breeze over it. We don't really think about that. But I hope you understand that in ancient Near Eastern culture, back in that day, sharing a meal with someone 
was to enter into intimate communion and fellowship with that person. So entering the home was bad enough, but eating in that home would have been the last straw for them. So as far as this group was concerned, this act was a violation of custom, of practice, of uh, tradition, but it was also a violation of racial, cultural, and religious purity. This is how they would have viewed Peter. Now in 4 through 17, we're going to get Peter's explanation. Now keep in mind, Peter is explaining a very, very important chapter in the entire Bible. This, is an, this, this situation of the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ was epic changing. It was covenant changing. Because in their mind, they thought the covenant was only for Jewish people. But we know what the Old Testament taught. They just didn't read their Old Testament too well, right? But here is that fulfillment. And think about what Peter is explaining here is so vitally important. Now, there's only one individual that I read and listened to that said this. But I think he's right. He notes that Peter is extremely cautious in his explanation. He's so cautious that he's almost apologetic. As you look, if you're a linguist, which I'm not... But, but I can tell what's going on in the Greek language. If you're a linguist, you can kind of tell when people's kind of stepping around the edge and making absolutely sure they do it exactly right so that you hear exactly what God is doing. Now, it doesn't throw Peter under the bus. It just says he's, he's very cautious in how he's explaining this. And I'll show you a few flags along the way. But furthermore, think about this. He's going to compromise not many days from now. Peter's going to compromise. So I think it adds validity to the fact that uh, he, he's going to capitulate in the future and he's somewhat apologetic, yet at least at the end he tells him straight that this is the work of God and you better not stand in the way of it. So here he's laying it out. He's traveled back to Jerusalem in 5 through 6. Let, you, you've already heard this before, right? If you came last Sunday in chapter 10. Uh, I won't repeat it all. But in 5 through 6, he says, look, I was praying. And I had a vision. You know, Jews knew what it was like to pray, right? Three times a day. I was praying, and I had a vision. I didn't come up with some kind of hair-brained idea. I didn't run roughshod into a Gentile's house. I was communing with the Father, and God sent this vision to me in a prayer. Sounds pretty good, right? They hear him say that because that's exactly what took place. In 7 through 9, he unfolds the actual conversation he has with the living God. Now stop and consider his audience. You think there was a gasp when Peter said, rise, kill, and eat? Just think about that. Uh, for them, for all of their lives, they could not eat just anything. They couldn't eat just any kind of meat or any kind of animal or any kind of reptile. So they were certainly bent sideways at this. The God who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai actually told you, Peter, to rise up and eat anything in that sheet ark? And that was, yes, the response. But what did Peter say? He argued with the Lord. Peter was good at that, wasn't he? By no means, Lord, will I eat this. Can you, can you hear the brothers in the background say, Amen, brother, we can't eat that stuff. Oh, wait a minute. God told you to eat that? There's probably some amens and... Hallelujah's in there. You better stand up for what's right, Peter. And our custom and tradition and culture, that's what's right, no matter what God says. Peter says, I'm not going to eat it. The Lord answered me and said, 
All right, second time around, what I've cleansed, you don't defile. You don't call unclean. And how many times did it take place? Anybody feel something about that when you say three times with Peter? I bet, the, I bet those guys standing around said, Peter, you got this thing with these three times. Really? And you got three men with you on top of that. But here he says to him for the third time about it. And immediately Peter says, on the heels of that, what happens? Don't call unclean what I've called clean. Immediately, according to the narrative, the Gentiles appear to him. Did you notice here that Peter doesn't reveal the exact place where he's lodging? He didn't say, I was lodging in the home of a tanner. He kind of conveniently left that part out, right? And you say, well, preacher, you're pushing this. No, I'm not. I think it's interesting. I think he's being very cautious. I think he's being very concentrated on how he's explaining it to these men sitting in their seats in Jerusalem. And so, he doesn't mention Cornelius by name. Does he? He doesn't mention that at all. In 12 through 14, he talks about the Spirit's command to him. Go with them without making distinction. And again, that's very, that means without hesitation, without misgivings. In other words, those Gentiles are equal with you as a Jew. Make no distinction whatsoever. Again, it seems obviously that he's avoiding Cornelius' name. And I think the caution is remarkable. And then he says, look, hey, on top of all of that, a holy angel stood in this man's house. Don't you love it? It's almost like Peter saying, and you know what I did? I stood right in the same footprints of that angel to make sure I was not declared unclean. <laughs> now, that's not in there, right? But can't you see Peter adding that emphasis to the story? Hey, look now, I had every right to be in this house because a holy angel stood in this home before I went into this home. That means it consecrates it, right? It's okay for me to go in. But then the command, go fetch Peter, for his words will declare the message of salvation to you. And in 15 through 17, he's going to summarize how he started to preach the sermon, to give the gospel. And he was interrupted by the sovereign work of God in redemption. And then Peter says, brothers, you need to understand that what happened in this man's house was nothing less than a Gentile Pentecost. The same thing that happened to us. In Acts 6, or Acts 2, the Pentecost experience that was prophesied for years is the very same thing that took place to us. What took place in the upper room is the same thing that is taking place or has taken place there. And then there's an explanation. The Spirit's outpouring, the speaking of tongues, the proclaiming of God's mighty acts. This is the exact thing that happened to them. Here's the note. Without distinction. Folks, if God gave them an equal gift, Peter's saying, who am I to prevent what God allowed? Did y'all notice the passage? Can you hear in Peter's voice a remembrance of the last time he tried to tell Jesus, I'm not going to do something? He said, this time I'm getting it right. This is what God told me to do. What did Jesus tell Peter? Get thee behind me. Yeah, that's what he said. So Peter's getting this right this time. And he says, I'm going to do it God's way. The Gentiles are now in Christ and in the covenant of grace. And the Bible says that Peter baptizes them. So you see the accomplished work of the Spirit of God 
being given to them upon conversion, and then that visible sign of the gospel, which was water baptism, to show death to self and being alive to Jesus Christ. Even though I think Peter is cautious in explaining God's work, he cuts right to the chase at the end and lets them see clearly, are you going to stand against the work of God? Did you know that sometimes it takes a lot of courage to say, this is what God said and you're going to believe it and I'm not going to back down? takes courage, doesn't it? Well, I, I know we, we have a lot of believers today that don't quite have the courage to say, this is what the Word says and this is what we're going to live, this is what we're going to preach. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word hasn't changed, and we're not going to change it. We're going to believe it. It takes courage to do that, and that's what happens. The idea of verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. The, the idea of that is they stopped their dispute. In other words, they didn't have anything else to say. All of their theological power plays had been exhausted. They didn't know what else to say, and they just rest upon the fact that this is God's work. Then they acknowledge God and glorify Him and give Him thanks for what has taken place. And here's the conclusion of the matter, which uh, I like this. That's why the title of the sermon is God Granted Grace and or Repentance to the Gentiles. Notice their response. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, if you would have seen this, and you were Peter or any of the witnesses, how would you have explained what just happened? Well, the Spirit was poured out. They got baptized. For neo-charismatics, they spoke in tongues. Was that the response that the Jews of the circumcision gave? How did they see what just transpired as an epic-changing, cultural, covenant-keeping event. How do they see this? They saw it as God has given repentance to Gentiles. So, I think that is a, a fitting opportunity for us to ask the question, why this way? Because there's an emphasis upon the sovereignty of God and His work among the people of the world. Not just among Jews, but among those that are not Jews. God is working to save. It was God who gave the repentance. And ultimately, where did the praise and glory go to? For salvation. God alone. No anthropomorphic sense here. No saying man got, got, a man just elevated himself to the status of being redeemed. Man, mankind's just great, right? No, there's no emphasis upon that whatsoever. No emphasis upon Peter's persuasive speaking. The emphasis is upon the Word of God, right? And God granting repentance to those who heard. So one thing these guys get right was the fact that the phenomenon of the giving of the Spirit was not the real miracle. But rather it was God working in the hearts that opened the door so that they could receive the Holy Spirit of God. God was working. What an awesome phrase. God gave repentance unto life. This summary is very helpful for the church, isn't it? It helps us focus on the main thing. It puts the focus in salvation on the sovereignty of God, the fact that He alone can grant you repentance. Anybody want to argue with that? When you see a verse like, God gave 
repentance to the Gentiles. Let me give you, how many things did I write on that paper? Flip it over on the back, like five of them, I think. Let's talk about repentance for a few moments. Y'all want to do that? Well, we're going to do it whether you want to or not, all right? (laughs) Repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation. That's the first one given to you. We live in a day when the significance of repentance is minimized. Some even believe that repentance has no place in the presentation of the gospel. Why? Because if you tell people to repent, that means they're doing a work to get salvation. That's hogwash. Why? Because the Bible makes it unequivocally clear that repentance is absolutely necessary in order for you to trust Christ and be saved and be on your way to heaven. It's absolutely necessary. No repentance, no eternal life. What was clear to these brethren after they analyzed what Peter said was that God granted repentance. Check this out. That leads to Without repentance, there's no eternal life. Without repentance, there's no eternal life. Do you remember the story in Luke 13? By the way, who wrote Acts? Yeah. All right, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 13, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, well, Jesus anticipates what they're saying, and there has been a Galilean atrocity. Remember the story? Uh, Pilate's group comes in and kills Galilean worshipers while they're worshiping, and, they, and he mingles their blood with the very sacrifices they're making. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, don't you think their sin was greater than ours, basically? Because they got killed like that. Jesus said, by no means. Unless you repent, you will, all, always, you will all likewise perish. Man, that's a bombshell, isn't it? I mean, I thought we were better than those ones killed when their blood... I mean, can you think of anything worse than going to worship in God's house and giving a sacrifice? And then they come, God allows them to come in and kill you and mingle your blood with the sacrifices. That's terrible. Furthermore, that's kind of what happened in Texas a few weeks ago, right? And the Pharisees said, isn't it because their sin, they're the greater sinners? And Jesus said, by no means. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then there's another atrocity that takes place. Remember the Tower of Shalom falls? The thing just falls over and kills a bunch of people. And they're saying, Lord, were not they greater sinners than we are because they died? And Jesus said, by no means. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Are y'all getting this? There's no distinction between you and anybody else in this world. You're a sinner just like they are. And Jesus says your greatest need as you view an atrocity like the Tower of Siloam and the, the Galilean atrocity, the greatest thing you can do before a holy God who controls the entire world is repent and turn to Him and trust Him. So repentance is necessary for salvation. Here's the second thing. It's also a divine gift from God. Repentance is a divine gift from God. It is the gift of God, just like faith is a gift of God. Man does not have the native ability nor the capacity to repent in the way that God requires. You can't do it on your own. No man seeks God. Not even one. No one at any time seeks God unless the God of eternity is in the mode of granting repentance. Period. 
God gives repentance as a divine gift. When we talk about repentance, we're talking about moving from the place of unbelief to the place of belief. (laughs) Folks, only one person I know can turn the light on in your mind to teach you that God is alive and that he can save your soul, and that's God himself. Because you are dead in trespasses and sin. Something must quicken your mind and your spirit and your heart. And what is that? It's the agency of the Holy Spirit of God that is awakening you to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. So this is a divine gift from God. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Flip over there. This will be a really good one for you to see. Notice how Paul explains this to Timothy. Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 24 through 26. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Who grants repentance? And when you read this text, repentance is a divine gift from God. It's it's a necessity for being born again. But it's also a divine gift from God. Here's the third thing. Repentance is also a gift of the new covenant. Do you know that's the crux of the teaching on the new covenant? The two big time passages that explain the new covenant from the Old Testament that anticipate the new is found in Jeremiah 32. 38 through 42, and Ezekiel 36, 24 through 29. Let me just read you an excerpt from 24 to 29 in Ezekiel because both passages say the same thing. Don't you love this? And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, (coughs) which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate the holiness in their eyes. I will take you from the nations, sound like the book of Acts, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. Isn't that good? And I will give you a new spirit. I will put it inside of you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will take out from you a heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what do you see in the new covenant? There's a turning to God. God is working in people to turn their hearts toward him. That is the central crux of the new covenant. That God is going to work in the hearts of people so that their hearts are turned toward God. Thus, it's the same language, I'm going to grant you repentance. Folks, do y'all understand that God doesn't have to do that? Are y'all listening? Does y'all understand that the God of the universe that created this entire world does not have to grant mankind repentance? He don't have to do that. He's God. He can do anything He wants to, but yet in His divine sovereignty, when you repent and turn to Him, He grants you that repentance, that ability to turn to Him and trust Him as Lord. Why? Because that's the way God designed the new covenant, so that He could work inside of your heart and turn you toward Him through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? So that we would be cleansed from idols to serve God alone. 
This is one part of what Christ accomplished with His sacrifice on the cross. The ability to grant you for repentance. Jesus did that. Here's the fourth thing. Repentance is also the other side of faith. Repentance is never just remorse. You know, we joke about something called jail sorrow. When somebody's just sorry that they're in jail. And that they got caught, right? And a lot of people see the gospel like that. Lord, I, I think I've done something wrong. And I'm remorseful. But it's not repentance unto eternal life. You can have remorse. So you have to put faith beside it. You can, attempt, you, you can actually attempt to reform yourself and not be a Christian. You can go home to, today and say, you know what? I'm not going to smoke another cigarette the rest of my life. Why? It's hurting my body, you know? I'm, I'm going to leave that alcohol alone because I know full well that it's not helping me at all concentrate on living for Christ. And you can say, well, or concentrate on life. Uh, I'm having a hard time getting to work, Right? I'm having a hard time accomplishing. I, I'm going to lay the alcohol down. I'm going to lay these things down. You can make those reforms without coming to Christ. But notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says to them, I know what manner of entry I had to you, that you believed the gospel, and you turned to God from idols. That's good stuff. Do you know that you can turn from an idol and not turn to God? You can just stack your idols up on the shelf And jump from one idol to the other. But notice how Paul words those prepositions. How you turned to God from idols. Brothers and sisters, if you turn to God, you will turn from idols. And you know what that word turned is there? Repentance. That's it. You turned to God from idols. That is so vitally important in the United States today because we see the gospel in many occasions as just putting another thing on the shelf and hope that if other religious things don't work, then maybe the gospel, maybe God will give me enough credit because I put the gospel on the shelf with every other idol. That doesn't work. True repentance is to turn to Jesus Christ only for salvation. And when you do, you won't serve other idols in life. You'll serve God alone. It's interesting that Paul gives that dynamic. So it's the other side of faith. In other words, all true faith is repentant faith. When it's faith granted to you by God, then it's going to be repentant faith that understands that you're a sinner and you're turning from sin and self to Christ only for salvation. It's the kind of repentant faith that says, I'm in a position of unbelief, but the Lord opened my mind and heart to the gospel, and now I'm in a position of belief. I've made a 180 degree turn, not a 360 turn and go back in the same direction. When you trust Christ, you turn to God from idols. So all true faith is repentant faith and all true repentance is believing repentance. Again, Paul's emphasis, read through it. Okay, last one. All true faith, all true repentance is a lifelong disposition. I could have said it this way. When you repent... The fruit of true repentance is that you will always be a repenter the rest of your life. In other words, the disposition that you're given by God, if you have saving grace and or repentant, a repentant heart, produces a lifelong disposition. When you came to faith in Christ, you repented and you became a believer. But you also became a lifelong repenter. Does anybody, uh, do you all agree with that? Uh, you, if you're saved, you better. Because to this day, to this day, standing right here, there's never been a time when I've committed a sin volitionally, willfully against God that I wasn't committed, that I wasn't convicted for that sin. 
every time. Now, it may not happen right on the spot, but Katie bar the door. It's usually worse when God reminds me a couple days later, after I've been to the woodshed for two and a half days. You ever have one of those woodshed revivals? Yeah, your dad used to give you those when you were growing up, right? He did the spanking and you did the screaming. That's the woodshed revival, right? Well, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens every one of them and disciplines them. Why? Because the Father disciplines his sons. And if you don't get the disciplined hand of God upon your life, the Bible says you're a bastard. That means you're an illegitimate child. You don't belong to God if you don't get disciplined. So, folks, this life disposition of repentance is a gift from God. You need to thank Him for it. That when you sin, He convicts your heart and you repent to God. Not for initial salvation because that lasts from the time you trust Christ to eternity. Right? But what it does do is put your heart in the right favor with God. In the essence, the fellowship that you need that's broken because of our sinful attitudes. So, repentance unto life. It's a divine gift from God. But you live a life as a repenter. That's your disposition. God, I'm in the wrong. I repent before you. You're my God. I'm, you, your spirit lives in me. And you've magnified my sin and I repent of it. So, in this event, the universal gospel of Jesus Christ promised in the Word of God is becoming universal. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The door to the Gentiles has swung wide open and the church will never be the same and you're going to see that from Acts 11 beginning in verse 19 to the end of the book of Acts you're going to see God saving Gentiles you're going to see Paul giving his life for the preaching of the gospel yeah there's going to be some confrontation just like in a Baptist church when we don't do things the way you want them done right there's going to be confrontation there's going to be difficulty by the way I'm making light of that but any time we step over the bounds and say that somebody's not a prospect for the gospel, you're sinning against God. Anytime you look at color or race or culture or socioeconomic class and you can have your elitist attitude like, whoo, Jesus saved me, but I don't know about that person. You don't understand the gospel, folks. You missed the boat somewhere. And this is exactly what we're reminded of. I remember being a youth pastor in a church and I was 20 three years old, something like that, at a church over in Georgia. And we started opening up the gym and letting people come in and play. And some African-Americans came into that gym. And one of the deacons came up to me and put his finger right in my chest. You know how hard it was for me not to say something. But anyway, (laughs) stuck his finger right there and he said to me, we built this gym for our kind. They can play up there at the high school gym. And man, I'm telling you what, I still have that feeling I've got right now. Whether I wanted to cry or knock his lights out. I'm just being honest with you. But I I, I kept my composure as a 22-year-old, and I said to him, you know what? I started to call his name, and I'm not going to do that. He's probably dead now. That's years ago. But I said to him, you, sir, will answer to God for that statement. But I'm going to open this gym up, as long as I'm this youth pastor, to whoever comes to this gym. Right? Boy, folks, don't think this is a dead issue. It's not. It rears its ugly head in all of us at times. Where we think that we are to get preferential treatment or we're whatever we are. The fact of the matter is the gospel is for everyone who believes. And it's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. So, 
These guys, I mean, don't throw them too far under the bus. This has been their lifestyle. It'd be like saying, hey, I'm a Baptist and I do certain things. I have certain traditions. Well, folks, they clung to those things. So it was a lesson to them. It's going to be a controversy that comes up over and over again. My question to you at the end of the sermon is this. Have you received the gift of repentance unto life? Have you individually received the gift? Listen up, guys, girls, everybody. Have you individually, you need to draw a circle around yourself and ask yourself that question. This is of eternal ramifications. Have you experienced repentance unto life? That question is not ultimately answered by looking back at a point in time. You can't answer that by saying, Well, Don, our children's pastor, took me to Windermere. 20 years ago. And I know I'm putting my hope in the fact that something happened on that day. Don't we do that? We revisit camp experiences. We say, you know what? I, I know something happened. I repented then, and, and I think I'm okay. Folks, that's not the question. The question is this. Are you a disciple of Christ today? The question is, are you a repenter today? Uh, we make crucial mistakes when we look back and say, when I was nine years old, something happened. I'm living, I'm putting my faith on whatever happened then. You better not. You better put your faith on a living relationship with Jesus today. Today. Are you living in the realm of being a repenter today? Is that the fruit of your life since you came to know Jesus? You're in the disposition of repenting of your sins because you met Christ. Am I a disciple today? Is a question we have to answer. Father, I want to thank you for bringing the gospel to my soul. That you granted me repentance. And God, I thank you that I'm a repenter today. Lord, thank you for convicting of sin. For changing our heart. Lord, when you took that heart of stone out, you gave us a heart of flesh that's pliable. That's redeemed. That can understand sin and the consequences of it. A heart that is tender toward you. That repents and follows you. God, I ask you to take hearts of stone out today and put within them a heart of flesh. God, do that. Lord, you are about the saving business. God, you're the one that grants repentance. Lord, I pray you would grant repentance today to someone who's lost. For believers, God, would you embolden us to think about the gospel that we carry to the ends of the world? God, we're not responsible for saving anyone we're responsible for being obedient to take that message to the world. To bring Christ to everyone. And let you convict and repent and save. Through your word, God help us to be that kind of church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.